Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. As you guys know, I'm Preston. I'm a recovering sexaholic, and uh, I have asked our speaker here today to come share his experience, strength at home with us. Uh, I've known Steve for going on 18 years, I believe. I came into this program in 2001, and Steve was in the rooms with me at the what used to be the Blue Portable, and uh, noon meetings and five o'clock meetings, and I remember. Um, He's a little crazy back in the day, so uh, it was kind of nice to you know know him and then come back into the program many years later, and he's a totally different person, and to see the change in him has just been astounding. And and uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, my sponsor slipped and suggested that I talk to Steve, and he's been my sponsor now for about a year and a half, and it's been a blessing, and it was great to ask him to come speak today and share. Uh, Share whatever you want to share, Steve. So I'm going to pass the mic over to you. Let's start sharing. And I'll get I'll cue the music, like you said. <laughs> hey guys, I'm Steve. I'm a sex addict, recovering sex addict, and alcoholic. I get anxious when I'm talking uh, to people, trying to share my story, and I try to figure out what 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 do I need to share about, and what should I share. So I'll go to the old standby, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. That seems to be the the best format uh, for me. Um, what it was like for me, you know, to to I guess to get a grasp on my sexaholism, there has to be a little bit of understanding of the environment that I grew up in. I believe that's that's part of my story. It's definitely not all of it. But, um, I remember from an early age. Uh, feeling extremely self-conscious, extremely self-conscious, always feeling like everybody's eyes were on me, and usually I would think they would be thinking something negative, right? I, I was always feeling like I was out of place and out of sorts. Um, the house that I grew up in was uh, it was crazy. Um, this morning I was actually thinking about a time when... Um, my parents were in a fight. This is probably when I was four years old, and I remember they went back into the room, and they were screaming, and I remember standing at the doorway hearing my mom screaming at him, saying, get your hands off of me, get your hands off of me, and I was terrified. I thought he was going to kill her, uh, and I didn't know what to do. I remember thinking, I'm gonna, I can't remember if I went to try to get in the room to stand between them. Um, yeah, that was... I don't want to say that was normal. That was probably one of the worst events. And I do remember the police showing up 
Uh, I remember that night thinking that I was going to lose my mom, that my stepdad was going to kill her. Uh, and it, and it terrified me. Um, I also remember a couple of occasions where she had a black eye. I don't remember always seeing it, but, uh, that was part of the environment that I grew up in. So I, was, I grew up really scared, really confused. I knew something was wrong, but I couldn't fix it. Uh, my stepdad, as I have said, was a, was a violent man. He came back from Vietnam. And I think this is part of it. As I've grown older, I think Vietnam kind of screwed him up. I really do. Because uh, I remember having to wake him from probably about 20 feet away because he would wake up swinging and screaming. Uh, and my mom would say, go wake up your dad. And I'd be like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to go wake him up. Uh, as the years progressed, he had calmed down. He never talked about that part of his life very much. But I do believe that had some sort of a really negative impact on the man. Uh, anyway, that's some of the environment that I grew up in. Um, and I guess as I had progressed through school, I, I'd, at the time when it was it, it probably the most violent between my parents, I had stumbled across pornography. Or there was a friend down the street. His dad was a truck driver, and they had stashes of stacks of porn, man. And they had it up in a tree house. And we would smoke cigarettes and look at porn. <laughs> I'm like five, six years old, smoking cigarettes, looking at porn. And I'm thinking... You know, as I look back on it, I'm like, that's not right. You know what I'm saying? But at the time, that was just my life. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know any different. That was just what I did. Uh, and I remember the feeling that I got, the warmth, the sensation that it was like head to toe, I felt okay. You know what I'm saying? There was a warmth that I can say that I felt like I had. And I remember being so, by this one picture, I tore it out and I folded it up and I put it in my pocket because I knew it was like when I looked at it I felt really good and I liked what I saw so I kept it in there and I guess I had forgot about it and then I had remembered my mom had washed my pants and my picture was ruined uh, and I remember feeling kind of sad about that but like I said we still had stacks that we looked at uh, um I remember seeing the first reel-to-reel pornography when I was about that old. I don't know if you guys remember that, but uh, I I remember seeing that. Um, and it wasn't, st- well, it wasn't terribly steady, but it was enough to impact me. I don't know if I was, I don't know if I was a sex addict yet, but I was definitely right there you know what I'm saying and I do believe those images impacted me um, we moved from that situation and then we moved into a whole lot better neighborhood and it wasn't nearly as, as rough um, and I had started noticing that I had a really strong need to be in relationships with females I would you know as part of my story I am a I've had serial relationships, overlapping relationships. And I always had to be in some sort of a relationship with somebody, with a girl, uh, to make me feel okay. Because as I said before, I was extremely self-conscious. And through my eyes looking out, I would sit in a room and I would think that I just, everybody else is okay and I'm not, right? And if I had a girlfriend, all of a sudden I felt like I fit, right? 
I was okay. That was the that was the leveling thing for me. And that was the same thing with pornography. It seemed to make things okay. Um, and normally, as I got into relationships, when I started discovering my own sexuality and, I guess, flashing back on the porn, I would always try to progress further with these girls. You know, if I'd kissed her one time, well, next time I'm going to try to kiss and I'm going to try to feel. It was never, it was never enough. I always had to have more. Um, and I remember, um, you know, along with all this stuff, our, we had, when cable came out, they had the boxes and you had like little flip channels and I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd try to get the dirty channels is what we called it. And I'd be sitting there trying to, listening to the squiggly, you know, watching it. That's, you know, and I, I, I know other people have talked about that. I was one of the guys that did that. Um, and also there were some same sex things that went on as well because when I was looking at pornography with this guy, um, we were also at times, I guess, sexually acting out. That's one of the things that I feel fairly ashamed about, but that's what we did. We undressed and we tried to act out what we saw on the, on the pages. Uh, I did that with him and I did that with my cousin. And that's where I learned how to kiss, if you will. Uh, and it created a little bit of confusion in my life because I didn't know, because I liked it, you know what I'm saying? And that didn't fit with what I thought everybody else was experiencing. I thought if you knew that about me, you'd think, oh, my God, this dude is, you know, he's gay, right? That was like the worst thing that you could say to me. He's gay. Um, and so I kept that way down inside. Um, and occasionally I would have euphoric recall or I'd have some idealizations and I'd just stuff it down. I was like, that's never coming out. That's never going to see the light of day. Um, and probably my acting out had increased with uh, females. Probably as I'm looking at that, as I think about that, probably to kind of cover up some of that stuff. About the time when I was 16 or 17 years old, um, I started drinking. As I said in my story, I'm also an alcoholic. Right? Uh, and the first time I drank, I just can't. I can't describe the magic. Uh, like I said before, it was, I always wanted to be cool, but then when I drank, I, I was cool. You know what I'm saying? It was like there was a transition in who I was as a person. And I, my family was extremely religious. Right? And I knew at that time, if they ever knew what I was doing, I was going to get killed. But I didn't care at that point because I had found a solution. Essentially, this was the... This was the secret handshake that got me into, I guess, the cool people, right? Because I, I also played basketball. I was athletic. And I remember walking down into the room, and there all the varsity cheerleaders were and some of the players. And I was like, oh, my God, this is like the inner sanctum. This is this is where it's all happening. And then as soon as I took a drink, I was like, oh. And my sexual acting out took off like a... You know, just just like gasoline on a fire, right? Um, and it had progressed into the place of every time I would go out with a girl, I would try to get them drunk so I could have sex with them, right? Um, I sexually assaulted somebody when I was 17. Um, 
at that point I had to have sex. Um, I, when I dated girls, if you will, there was there was an agreement that they had made that they probably didn't even know that they had made. You know, if I'm going to spend time with you, if I'm going to do anything with you, we're going to have sex. Or I'm not going to have anything to do with you, or I'm going to move to the next one to where I can do it. Um, and part of that was because there was an idea here again. There was an idea that I had in the back of my mind that I gathered from TV that, you know, to be a man, you've got to be able to have sex with as many girls as you can and essentially be able to walk away from it and not have any feelings about it at all, right? And so my goal here again, to be a man, that's what I was going to do, right? Uh, Because I didn't feel like a man. I felt less than a man. There again, I wouldn't let anybody know that that's what I was feeling, but that's what was going on. And, you know, I would be active with people, and then I would walk away, and I would feel like crap. I'm like, there's got to be something wrong with this. This this doesn't feel right. You know, because I would feel sad. I'm like, there seems like there should be something more than what's going on than what I'm doing. And... I just figured I needed to beat it down a little bit more. That must be the problem. That was a sign that there was something wrong with me somewhere because it, I shouldn't be feeling that way. Um, I had my heart broken in a couple of relationships that actually people actually got into. Uh, they got into my heart. Uh, one in particular um, that just devastated me. Um, I was as close to loving somebody there as I had ever been to loving anybody. Right? I didn't. It wasn't that I didn't want to, right? It was just I don't think that I was capable. Here again, in the family, the family dynamics. I had a mom that was never satisfied. Everything I did wasn't good enough. If I made, you know, all A's and one B, well, I should have made all A's. You know, if I had progressed from a D to a C. Well, why aren't you getting an A? If I did the kitchen and there was a spot on the pan, well, everything's shitty. All I see is the spot on the pan, right? So everything I did, nothing nothing was good enough. Like I said, that created the internal dynamics for me for how I experienced this disease, right? How I experienced this disease is it was the answer to everything. It made me feel okay. I could get in my skin. And the problem is, is it constantly requires more and it constantly pushes me further into it I look at seedier and seedier things you know fast forward 15-20 years later I'm no longer looking at the Sears catalogs right I'm looking at pretty hardcore stuff thinking about uh, rape uh, and seeing prostitutes right that is the progression of this disease for me I was extremely suicidal uh, when I came in to SA and the homicidal, I would say the least. Um, I hated God, I hated myself, and I hated everybody around me. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever remember Tombstone, and if you guys ever see that. Right? <laughs> and he was talking about that guy, and he's just like, he's just mad that he's alive. Right, and that's that's essentially how I think I felt. I was mad that I was alive. Uh, it wasn't what I I didn't want my life to turn out the way that it did, and I had viewed myself essentially as a victim of everything. Right, and I felt like I had the cards for it too. 
Right? Uh, my dad left me at birth, and I had this stepdad who seemed to hate my guts for I don't know what reason. And so I always had the trump card to, well, my dad left me. I can do whatever. It doesn't make a difference. Uh, I did that internally. That gave me a lot of excuses, a lot of rationale for a lot of behaviors that I got engaged with. I was physically violent in high school. Uh, I was a bully, but I was terrified. Most people wouldn't know. They would think, oh, well, I don't know what they thought. That's really bad when I start thinking I know what people think. But I wanted them to think that I wasn't scared of anything. But the truth was I was scared of everything. I was terrified of my own shadow. Uh, I was terrified that I was going to get beat up on a regular basis. And the only way that I knew how to do it was to puff up and be bigger. Right? That was how I handled it. Got into a lot of trouble doing that kind of stuff. I know I embarrassed my family and really damaged my reputation for that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, like I was saying, the progression of this disease for me was it was pretty astounding. Um, I remember looking at porn and I was, you know, I was I probably masturbated like 10 times, but I couldn't get an erection. I was impotent, but I couldn't stop, and I was furious because I couldn't. It was like there was nothing I could do to escape what I was feeling. Right, the pain didn't stop. The uh, that's the same thing that happened when I was drinking. I'm gonna start getting emotional, and I didn't know what was wrong. I had no, I had nothing else to turn to. Nothing was nothing was freaking working. Nothing. Because usually when I drank, I would get calm. I, you know, I'd be like, or when I was some, but it actually started working in reverse. <laughs> and I was like, this shit ain't supposed to be working like this. <laughs> you know, and it started getting noisier. And I couldn't escape what I was feeling. And I couldn't escape the voices in my head of, you know, God hates you. You're going to hell. You're damned. You have screwed up so bad. Nobody would ever want you. You know. Just awful voices inside of my head. <clears throat> and there were a couple times that I had attempted suicide. Well, actually, one time it was probably my best attempt. I probably, you know, in looking at it, I could have done it a little bit harder. But uh, to give you a an example of a frame of mind that I was in was a uh, hostel would be putting it mildly. I was living at this friend's house who was my boss at the time um, and <clears throat> they graciously let me you know pay rent and, and live there um, I went into one night I was just I don't know I was tore up about something and I was just frustrated and didn't want to continue to go on so I went to their medicine cabinet and I essentially emptied all of their prescription pills I don't even know what they were they had like a little half gallon of boric acid that I downed um, I remember doing the hundred count or those, those big bottles of aspirin right so everything that was in there I essentially emptied into my system and I remember laying on the floor cussing God saying I'm ready to go to hell damn it go ahead and send me uh, and I, I remember as I was laying there uh I swear to God, I heard this voice. And it said, Stephen, you're out of control. 
<laughs> and I remember thinking, what in the world is that? Right? That sounded absolutely crazy. There's a part of me that was like, no shit. <laughs> you know? But I didn't know how to stop it. I didn't know how to stop what was going on. My approach to life was prior to coming to AA and as I was a victim, right? My mentality and my approach to life is I am a victim of everything. It's happening to me. Everything is happening to me. And I don't have any choices about anything, right? I didn't take responsibility for any actions, any behaviors. Um, that whole serenity prayer when I came into SANAA, was, that was one of the most profound things I'd ever heard. You know, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I've had that all screwed up my whole life, right? I'm always beating on things that I can't change, you know what I'm saying? And there are things that I actually can change. I do nothing about it and say, oh, you know, poor me. But anyway, um, I was extremely hostile in coming into SA, I remember feeling like this is not going to work. I know that it's not, but I got no other place to go because I had spent money seeing counselors. I'd been sent to a couple of mental institutions, right? Uh, I'd spent a lot of money seeing counselors, actually. I'd gone to church a lot of my life trying to handle not just my sexual stuff, but just me in general, right? It's like I know that there's something broken. I just can't fix it. Um, and years before, I had actually felt like a higher power had directed me to AA and SA, but I was just not willing to accept that I was an alcoholic or a sex addict. That was that was you people, right? That's pretty much how how I felt. Um, I remember my first SA meeting. Uh, one of the guys was there. He was talking about cross-dressing and going into Centennial Park. And I was like, it's not me, man. I am out. You people are sick. Um, about three years later, I came back in with a completely different attitude. It took about three, four years. I think in the AA Big Book, it talks about John Barleycorn being our best advocate, right? Talk about how it beats us into a state of reasonableness. That's what this disease did for me, right? Uh, that's what lust and that's what my acting out does. It beats me into a state of reasonableness and open-mindedness uh, that I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to recover, right? I had spent most of my life looking for a third option, right? I've always wanted a third option. I don't like this two-option thing that I got here. So I spent most of my life looking for... What's another way I can deal with this thing? Didn't work very well, but that's what I did. Um, anyway, Bill Stewart, at the time, he wasn't my sponsor, but I remember going to a meeting and hearing him talk about how angry he was and how suicidal he was. It was We had a meeting, I think it was at Belmont and Gray Bar. It was a church that we used to have meetings on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. Uh, and he was giving a story and he was talking about how he would give this thing 30 days or 60 days or something like that. And if it didn't work, he was going to kill himself. 
And I was like, um, yes, that's me. Uh, I, I didn't see anything, and I didn't think it was going to work. Um, it's, but I did get a sponsor, uh, a gentleman named Alan, Alan C. Um, I heard people say, hey, if somebody has something you, you want or you like, Ask them to be your sponsor and to tell you where my frame of mind was. I thought he was a, he seemed to be a good looking guy and he had money. And I'm like, I want that. And so I asked him to be my sponsor based on that. And the gentleman saved my life. Uh, so that for me says, you just take the actions, man. Screw your motives. Just take the actions, right? And see what happens. Cause I would call him regularly. Every day, I would be on fire about, I don't even know what. And at the end of the conversation, he would always say to me, he goes, you know what, Stephen, you're a good guy. You know, and I just, it, that was hard for me to hear, you know. I was like, just, did you not listen to the conversation? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Did you not hear what we that I just said to you? Because on the backside of it, I'm still always waiting for somebody to say to me, you know what, Stephen, you are a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. You might as well just go ahead and quit. It's not going to work for you. But that's never what he offered. And he'd always say, "You're just another bozo on the bus." And he would laugh at me. He goes, "You're a five. You're not even a good sex addict, Steve." <laughs> yeah. And I would feel like, ah, oh. you know. So there's space for me. And and there was another meeting that I went to. It was at the Serenity House in I think it's in Gallatin. Because uh, I had checked myself into a halfway house at that time because I knew that what was required I wasn't going to be able to do. And, of course, at the time, the only other option I heard was, well, you need to go to a treatment facility out in Arizona, which is about sixty grand, You know, and I'm like, I don't have that kind of money, guys. <laughs> you know, I'm making $14 an hour. Uh, we got to find another option. And so I, I checked myself into the three-quarter house and lived there for about a year and a half, almost two years. And I hated it, and, but I loved it, and it saved my life. Because I knew at the time I wasn't going to make myself go to the meetings. I wasn't going to, right? And I wasn't going to make myself do the things that I needed to do. I knew that, I knew that enough about myself. Uh, to where I was like, I gotta, I gotta get into a different environment. And they did, you know, and I felt resentful that I had to check in and check out and had to get a buddy, right? I had a certain number of meetings that I had to, to go every week. And, you know, and some of these guys are coming straight out of the penitentiary, right? And so there's all kinds of egos, weird power structures that are crazy, but it saved, they made me make my bed every morning, right? And I thought, this is just, it's like my parents. But I understand that that's part of me taking care of myself. I had no idea how to take care of myself. My whole life I thought I did. I thought that's what I was doing, but I had absolutely no idea how to take care of myself. What does it mean to actually love myself and take care of myself? Um, and I learned, right? Um, I remember hearing things in the meetings like... uh there's this one guy at a meeting that I went out to in Antioch. He said, I got to tell on my disease. And he would 
essentially come in and talk about the various thoughts that he had during the during the day where he had had thoughts about drinking right yeah I just I, unprompted I wouldn't think anything about that you know what I'm saying uh, but I found for me it was absolutely essential to to relieve the compulsion because when I got into a space inside of my head it seemed like the only relief I could get from it is if I called somebody and said hey man I'm thinking about going and doing blah and it was just like it felt like the obsession was just lifted out of me right it was magic was all I can say and I was like oh so I don't have to do it and I remember Patrick I don't know if you guys remember a gentleman he's He's blind, right? His way of acting out was back in the day when they, he would get videotapes. <laughs> and he would take it back to his apartment. And he would just listen to it. And I thought, this is insane, right? It doesn't even make sense. Uh, but what I gathered from that is it's in the mind, man. This disease, it's not just in the eyes, it's in the mind. This disease rests in the mind. It rests in my thoughts and my imagination. And, and that's what he typified. But he, because <clears throat> like I said, I also used to see prostitutes. And when I woke up, if I had the thought, I'm going to go see a prostitute today, I was going to go see a prostitute that day. It wasn't a matter of if or maybe. It was going to happen. Whether I wanted to or whether I didn't want to, I was going to see a prostitute today. You know, and it was awful, and it terrified me. And I knew that there was nothing that I could do to stand in between that. But what Patrick said, he said, Stephen, if you get that idea, I want you to call me. And if you can convince me that it's a good idea, because I'll even pay for it. And I was like, that's the deal. I knew that he was kind of yanking my chain, but at the same time, I was willing to do that. And lo and behold, I haven't had to go see a prostitute in over 22 years. That is amazing for a guy like me. Because there was a time when I had, I had to go. It wasn't if, it wasn't maybe, it was I was going to do that. Whether I wanted to or whether I didn't want to. And it was the same thing with masturbation and pornography. Whether I was a willing participant or not, it was going to happen. And I couldn't do anything about it. I had no power. I had no power over this disease at all. It dictated to me what I was going to do, how I was going to live, where I was going to live, who my friends were, right? Who they weren't. It was all a part of that. Um, I don't think I realized how deeply I was entrenched into it until actually I started coming out of it, right? But anyway... I I'd started forming relationships like that. And the whole time I was still thinking, this shit ain't going to work, man. And my sponsor would suggest things to me. And I and, there, and I would tell him, I'd be like, this ain't going to work. He'd go, well, try it anyway. We'll do it anyway. And I would do it. You know, that well, you need to pray. Well, I hate God. I don't want to talk to him. Do it anyway. I think that doesn't even make sense, Right? Because I grew up feeling like, well, you've got to, you've got to feel like it, you know. I was essentially my whole life. I've been led by my feelings. You know, I didn't know that I had sick feelings. I didn't know that, you know. Uh, and so they started teaching me principles, right? And I started putting those principles in my life. 
I started becoming accountable. I started, you know, I started working the steps, right? Um, but at the time, I had switched from Alan to uh, another gentleman, Dan, Doctor Dan, um, and it was a life-saving occurrence. He was the first person who I had worked a, four, a fifth step with and a fourth step. He invited me over to, and that's when <clears throat> they were playing video games. I remember that, and I'd go over there and watch him and another guy in the program, and they'd play video games, and we would talk. But I remember sitting in the rooms, and everybody was talking about this fourth step, right, this fifth step experience. Oh, it was so profound. I cried. I wept like a baby. It was so deep. It was so moving, right? And so I'm, <clears throat> I'm like, okay, this is what's going to happen to me, right? This is, I'm gearing up for it. And, you know, as I'm writing this stuff, I'm not feeling anything but crappy as I'm writing, to be honest with you. Yeah. And then I go over there, right, and we spend probably two Saturday afternoons going over the my fifth step as, as good as I could. And he was, you know, start out with the thing that you don't want to tell me. Right? That's what I want you to start out with. Is there anything in your mind that you're like that you didn't write down on that paper or that you absolutely don't want to tell me? Because that's what I want you to start out with. And I thought, well, probably the same sex stuff. Yeah, I, I don't want to talk about that. So I did that and then we started working backwards and I was feeling no emotion. There was nothing that was happening. Sometimes I'd feel a twinge of guilt or shame or something like that, but I, I remember sitting in there thinking, see, it isn't working. Told you it's not going to work, right? My mind's just chopping at me at that time. And I was just, I felt just absolutely disgusted and frustrated. Uh, and I was like, see, Stephen? And he said, go to the other room. And so I went to the other room and what had happened is my attention was drawn to how quiet my head was. Right? I could sit in a room and my mind was quiet. I thought, oh my God. If you under, well, you probably do. But my mind was a battleground. It was never quiet. It was never quiet. It was always full of conflict and agitation and fear. Right? But I walked in there and I experienced peace and I thought this is this is good right it left you know but I had recognized and that's actually if you read the promises in the literature it talks about that it doesn't promise that we'll have great emotional events it does promise that we'll experience being being at peace and being at ease with ourselves right it does promise that so I learned from that you know it's I gotta stay out of the results. I just gotta get into the efforts. Right? I gotta stay in the efforts. I just gotta just do the work. Forget how I think it's gonna turn out and just not try to direct it that way. Right? Because my deal is normally I work toward an end. You know what I'm saying? I work toward an end. And that's how I would work the steps. But I have found that it doesn't work that way. When my job is, as my sponsors would say, is, is to be on the efforts committee, not on the results. Right? I just take the efforts, I take the steps, and let the results be what they are. Anyway, um, that was my first 
fifth step experience, and I was extremely grateful for that. Um, people joke. I, I kind of get annoyed. They call me angry, Steve. Sometimes it annoys me. Uh, but for the most part, that's that's how they knew. That's how they experienced me. Right? They experienced me as angry, Steve. They didn't really know to call me scared, Steve. Right? They just saw my anger. They had no idea the amount of terror that I was feeling at any given moment. And that was behind my anger, right? Fear, as our literature says, is probably one of the chief motivators or it activates my character defects. It's amazing how greedy I can become when I start getting scared, how insensitive. Yeah. When I start getting scared, I can do a lot of really weird stuff, man, a lot of hurtful stuff. So for me, fear is a chief activator of a lot of defects. And trying to slow it down and say, what am I scared of? That's what Bill is doing for me right now. He's like, every time I call him, what are you afraid of? Right? Do an inventory on that. And I am finding that fear is just something that is woven in and out of my whole life. So... um this progression, like I said, it, I, I change. I, I remember, you know, the 18-wheeler, right? I remember trying to deal with lust. And I remember the first time I prayed for somebody, because they would say, pray for them. And I thought, that is just so stupid. I just, you know, it just, it's just so stupid. But it's like, what other ideas <laughs> you know what I'm saying <laughs> you know you know you're, you're backed into a corner you know and it's like okay so I did and I remember praying and the thing that struck me as I prayed for this individual it wasn't that I had this great relief from the lust it was the thought and the feeling that came to me was that's probably the first time you've ever prayed for anybody I am so wrapped up in myself man I am, so, I am the center of my universe, and I and I honestly believe I should be the center of yours. Right? That's my approach to life. And but that's what I had felt the first time, and I thought, well, that is kind of nice. I think I'll keep doing that. Right? So I learned how to start trying to pray for people. You know, if I were in the store and I would see some sort of an ad. Do that, and I remember going into the grocery store and call Judson. I talked to Judson. Judson said, "Well, I always bookend, right?" And so I would call him before I would go into the store because you know, going up through the checkout line, they've got the National Enquirer or the Cosmopolitan and all the other things that trigger me, or just the lady in the fruit, you know, or a dude, right? Doesn't make a difference, you know. And I'm like, okay, I'll call and. I found that I could actually do some of those things successfully without engaging in my disease or engaging in the lust. Um, for me, I started finding out that I could follow suggestions. I could actually trust people. Uh, the progression of that was difficult because I didn't trust anybody. I got the, I don't know if you guys are aware of a book in AA, they have a book called Living Sober. It's a yellow and white book. It's an old book. Uh, but I got that book, and I started just doing the suggestions in it. And that was probably my first experience of actually actually doing stuff that it, people had said to do. 
Um, and as I started opening up and started following suggestions, I started finding a lot of freedom for myself. And I started finding there was a whole big world. And people would say things, not just to me, but I would hear it in a meeting, Steve, or whoever. You could go to a homeless man in the park and ask them how to run your life, and they would do a better job than you. Right? Um, and I, I honestly took that as a as kind of a marching order. Okay, that's how I need to approach that, and that's how I also found that is one of the ways in which I effectively start working step three. Right? Because if I'm not if I'm not really asking and follow, I'm running my show, right? And it doesn't mean that I do everything like that, but early on I would do a lot more of that, right? Because I would get wrapped around the axle uh, and create drama in situations that didn't need drama. That was the only way I knew how to do things. Um, so... Since, I mean, the intermediate time, I, I graduated from high school with about a point eight. I think it's about what it was, right? If I had gone there probably another semester, they would have probably kicked me out. They would have expelled me from the system. Uh, my mom and my parents were at their wit's end with me. Here again, I felt like I was, I guess I felt like I was just a dumbass, to be honest with you. I just was, as my mom would say, I was incorrigible or I couldn't learn. Somewhere in recovery, I decided that I wanted to go back to college or I wanted to go to college. And I was terrified because I didn't feel like I had the ability. And I had a sponsor guide me through that, right? Um, it wasn't an easy thing, right? And I, and I remember thinking... My my first response was, well, I'm just going to go in and just take a full load, right? And he's like, no, 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 no. Why don't you just, like, dip your toe in it, take one or two classes at a time, and see how you can do it, right? And I had been out of school for a while. Uh, and essentially the last year of high school, I really didn't give a shit. That was the place where I went to find out what was happening on the weekends. That was the only reason that I had attended school at that time. I had given up on school. I had my English teacher suggest that I join the circus that's what he suggested. He said, man, you could travel, you could see the world, meet all kinds of interesting people. And I can see how you could say that. I, I can see how you could say that. Uh, here again, you know, in this early part of my recovery, I'm thinking, well, I'm going to try it. And I do it. And then I got really frustrated really easy, and I got really scared and overwhelmed really easy. And I wanted to quit at one time. And my sponsor said to me, he goes, okay, why? He goes, okay, he just quit like he quit everything else. And that had enough hook in me to make me be like, screw you. I ain't going to quit. <laughs> yeah, I don't quit everything. And I continued on. And I, a few, quite a few years later, I got my degree from... I'd moved away to Moorhead, Kentucky, to, from Moorhead State. And I graduated with honors, right? I was uh, magna, and I was the number one student in my class, right? In my construction and engineering class, I was the number one student, top student. And I take a lot of pride in that. 
that is not how I saw me. You know what I'm saying? And I don't think that's unique to me. I think that's all of us sex addicts. I think we all come in with really skewed perspectives of ourselves, our abilities, and our life. Right? And so, you know, part of me, I was like, how am I making these grades? This doesn't even make sense. I did find out that if you do homework, <laughs> you actually do perform. Right? I didn't, all right, I didn't know that. But, and I've been, I've been married. I've gotten married since then. Uh, sometimes I don't know if that was a mistake or absolutely the best thing that's ever happened to me. As a result, I also have an 12 year old child who I love deeply. I love, I, I love him to death. He's autistic. He's not severely autistic. Uh, but I get to have conversations with him and I, and I get to tell him that he's exactly the way that he's supposed to be and that I wouldn't change a thing about him. And that's the same thing that's about me. I'm exactly the way that I'm supposed to be. I don't need to change. I'm not defective because I'm a sex addict or an alcoholic or an addict. I'm not a bad person. I am exactly the way that I'm supposed to be. And I don't need to change a thing. All I need to learn how to do is take responsibility, put one foot in front of the other, and keep doing it. Not get frustrated with myself because I'm not where I think I need to be. Or get frustrated because, well, I've had a little slip here or I've had a little slip there. So what? Today my life is substantially better than what it used to be. I don't... I have a life today whereas I didn't before. Right? The quality of my existence is substantially better. And I'm grateful for people like you. I am. You've saved my life. It may not mean anything to you, but it means something to me that I have a place to go that people care about me and have saved my life. So, And I'm never sufficiently grateful, as Bill would say, I'm never sufficiently grateful for what this program has brought into my life. So I guess with that, I'm done. as well for that. Thank you, Steve, for sharing. Uh, and I remember you as Angry Steve, and I can no longer say that. I can no longer call you that. No anger there. It's just love and kindness and patience with me. So thank you. Um, that. Got nothing else. Um, time for our seventh tradition. We have no duty to self-supporting for our own contribution. Uh, what do we need to do to check with those duties? Whatever's on the I don't even know what's on the thing, man. I'm just script. I'm, I'm, I'm off the script now. Um, uh, do we have any essay-related announcements? <laughs> no essay-related announcements?
keeps us sober. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back, it works if you work it, and you're worth it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, your best source for experience, strength, and hope from the SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choose either monthly or a one-time donation. Music was provided by Matt P. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.